0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to Episode 318 of the podcast. It is September 17th, 2018. Joining me today from Sweden is Marcus Hammerberg. He's the author of a really fascinating book titled Salvation, The Bungsu Story, How Lean and Kanban Saved a Small Hospital in Indonesia Twice and Can Help You Reshape Work in Your Company. So Marcus is originally a software developer. Today, he is a consultant, a lean agile coach, a speaker, and an author. He ended up with an opportunity to work with a hospital in Indonesia, and he tells that compelling story in the book, and we talk about that. Um, today here in the podcast. How did a huge hole in the roof help trigger a change in uh, culture and results at this hospital? You'll hear about that and more. I hope you enjoy it and find it inspirational. I I really do encourage you to check out the book. You can find it on Amazon as a paperback and a Kindle book. If you'd like to uh, find links to that, to Marcus's website, and um, other places you can find him online. You can go to leanblog.org slash three one eight. Marcus. Hi, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you, Mark,
1: for inviting me and having me here.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's great to, uh, to have you here. I'm excited uh, to have you share uh, some of your story from, from the book with the listeners and, um, talking about applications of lean and Kanban and different methods and, you know, a really important story of of helping a hospital that was in um, great need. Um, You know, before we get into that, can you tell the listeners about yourself, um, your your professional background, where you're from, things like that?
1: Yeah, so uh, it could be a good idea because the story is set in Indonesia, which It's a country where I've only been for this period of time. So I'm actually a Swedish software developer from the beginning. And uh, then I got really interested in how to work more effectively together. Uh, And that led me to investigate agile methods, uh, starting with Scrum and then entering into something that in the IT world is called Kanban which is a little bit of a funky name for a, method, for a lean method when you lean is a tool, right? Mm-hmm. But that in turn got me really interested in lean. So that's kind of my, my progression. I still do software developer development from time to time because i cannot uh, i cannot help but putting my fingers in the dough from from <laughs> time to time but uh, but nowadays i work most uh, oftenly as a agile coach for different companies here in stockholm mm-hmm.
0: and and maybe you know if you can give a little bit of background i'm i'm thinking a lot of my listeners you know they may or maybe from a manufacturing or a healthcare background Uh, might not know some of these terms. So if you wouldn't mind giving just even just a brief overview of, let's say, Agile and Scrum, how are those related uh, practices?
1: I'd love to. Uh, So Agile is actually like a mindset uh, uh, that is described in something called the Agile Manifesto, which is a little bit like a reaction to the the way that we did software development back in the 90s and 2000s. And basically, it's taking the lean principles and applying them to software development. development. Uh, And it's a manifesto, so it's just a couple of very simple value statements that we value interactions over processes, for example. And then a whole array of different methods and applications of these principles has uh, arisen during o- over time. And the first one that came out of uh, the Agile community and got really, really famous and big was uh, Scrum. In fact, it actually existed before they wrote the Agile Manifesto. And mm-hmm. Scrum is a way to cooperate with a very... Is, uh, small but well-defined uh, uh, frames for how you, could, uh, how you should and could interact uh, with each other. It emphasizes a lot of retrospection. So you look on your process from uh, very frequently, weekly basically, uh, and, and improve the way that you do work. And you have a lot of small batches thinking in there, meaning that we might do uh, from day to day, we do check-ins on how our work is progressing. And we deliver work in small increments. Uh, So we always, at the end of every other week, we have something that we can put in front of a user. So a small chunk of functional software that could actually be deployed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that certainly reminds me of uh, you know some core lean principles, working in smaller batches, improving flow, having these cycles and feedback loops um, for improvement. When, when you say the Agile manifesto was a reaction to the way software was being developed, I imagine it was big batches delivering an entire large application all at once instead of doing so more incrementally and getting feedback. Is that... First.
1: Yeah exactly we we refer to that as the waterfall mo- model where i think it's actually modeling modeled after how you d- did s- things early on how you was, would do construction right mm-hmm. so first you would write all the specific all the requirements for the system and then you would write all the specifications and when them they are signed off you would just put them in in front of a developer that would write the code and then you would test it and then you would take it into production. And that doesn't work because software development is a, a something that you discover. It's not manufacturing. You need, to under, you need to discover how the system works as you go through the work. In, uh, we have a common friend, uh, Woody Suli, Sule, and he says it's in doing the work that we discover the work we need to do. So, And that's very much true. And I think that we are, many companies to this day actually are still kidding themselves about that you could just write down what needs to be done and then just have the developer basically translate English into code. And that's not at all how it works because there's so many moving parts and so many missed opportunities also if you do that. So the agile movement has actually uh, has challenged that statement and wants to do stuff in much much smaller chunks. As you said um, before, agile a six month delivery was considered pretty small. Uh, It would be even years or a year or even years sometimes before you deliver something. And nowadays, if you if you meet even the biggest software companies, they deliver many many times a day. So I read somewhere that in 2007, Amazon.com did a new delivery to production every 12 seconds. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's gone down considerably after that as well. And if you want to do that, of course, you need bringing the discussion back to lean. If you want to do that, of course, you need a super smooth flow and a super uh, focus on quality throughout the entire chain. And that's where I do most of my consultancy, trying to help companies to to get such a flow in place.
0: Yeah, and and even yeah, you know, I wouldn't consider myself um, uh, really a, a software person, but the, to hear these ideas of you know quality and flow, that that to me, I mean that if you go to the Toyota website and see their explanation of the Toyota production system, they yeah. talk about basically you know built-in quality. Um, which means either you know, preventing errors or detecting and solving them quickly. And the idea of um, you know, trust-in-time flow, which involves smaller batches, and, and these print, the, these goals are mutually reinforcing. We uh, improve flow, and that tends to improve quality. The way we improve flow is by improving quality. Um, it, yeah. goes, it goes hand-in-hand, hand and it sounds like that's the case in software applications.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so I can tell you a little bit of a funny story because... Uh, I was invited by two guys working for a, a lean consultancy once, and they asked me to explain Agile to them. And I was very confused for, because the link has been clear for me. Mm-hmm. So I started to explain this, much as we have done now. And then someone said, well, that's just lean. And then his colleague interrupted him and he said, yes, but he now notice that he's talking about developing, development, uh, R&D. So this is lean applied to R&D, where most lean uh, thoughts would be applied to manufacturing. Uh, and, and that's actually a big change. And I think that is, if you want to like, pinpoint what the difference between agile and lean is, it's somewhere in there. Because mm-hmm. agile tries to give you, as in the word, tries to give you advantages by being agile, giving you opportunities to re-decide more frequently And change your mind more oftenly and that we we achieve that by having a fast flow so that we can put something out really fast and learn from that and then change our Mm -hmm. mind whereas in manufacturing it's all about making the many cars at the same quality really really fast
0: yeah and i I think there are you know are a lot of parallels that's a good point you bring up about product development, there's, there's also a methodology called the Toyota product development system. And, you know, I think there are a lot of parallels to, uh, the lean startup methodology. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, yeah. Common ground and, and, and different, different, uh, sometimes, you know, different language. And, and I think it's, it's interesting when you talk about, you know, uh, I love that that quote. You know, in doing the work, we discover the work that needs to be done, and and maybe we can use that quote to transition um, to the story of, of you going to uh, to Indonesia, because yeah. there's uh, you know I think of the lean startup movement, and you know there are people who make jokes of you know the only people who still require five year plans are you know some venture capitalists and. You know, central planners in a communist country that
1: yeah, 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 who can <laughs> predict who can <laughs>
0: predict uh, you know, this five-year plan that we just go execute. And you know, I think sometimes in lean healthcare, I've heard executives ask for, "Well, you know, I need you, I need you to give us the five-year roadmap." And I'm, i don't know if that. I mean, if, if we if we went through that exercise, the roadmap's going to change because we're we're going to learn. Nothing ever goes according to plan, especially in uh, complex complex environments Um.
1: no yeah exactly so i'm right now working for a a quite famous swedish startup called spotify and and here we are we are giggling every time someone says something about six months down the road because we know that nothing in our environment around us has is the same at that point in time so there's no use making plans that like like that yeah. we We could of course like envision the future and we should absolutely uh, go for values and, and the principles that guides us towards that future, but mm-hmm. making detailed plans that far ahead n- no use there's just waste of time I think yeah
0: so let let's if if, if you if you can go ahead and yeah uh, you know, tell a story I'm curious how did you end up going um, from Sweden to Indonesia how did you end up getting involved in uh, helping a hospital
1: Yeah. So um, that's actually a a fun story in a way, because it starts out pretty easy. And it actually starts out with how I met my wife. So on my second date with my wife, she told me that uh, she's a nurse. Mm -hmm. So she told me that the reason that she is a nurse is that she wanted to go to a developing country at some point in her life. Mm. And I... Was made aware of that that was the plan. So if I was interested to progress, I should make that <laughs> <laughs> adjustment to my plan as well. Um, and then it took a couple of years. Uh, we got married, and we got some, we got kids, and so it took a couple of years. But uh, we are members of the Salvation Army, which is uh, not only uh, I know that it's in state in the states it's most mostly known as a charity, but it's actually a church as well. And it exists in uh, about 128 countries, I think it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we volunteered to the Salvation Army and said, we want to give about uh, three years to you for uh, to work. And they came up with a few suggestions. And it was actually pretty interesting because Elin, my wife, she was easy to find a job for, right? A nurse mm-hmm. is needed. It's easy to know what they do. But they didn't really understand what I did. Uh, so after a while, they realized that I, I was something around management. I remember it said <laughs> on on the letter. Yeah. So they sent us to Indonesia, and Indonesia, the Salvation Army in Indonesia is uh, pretty big and has a long history, more than 100 years, of doing healthcare work there. So they have six hospitals and 17 clinics throughout the country. And we actually lived very close to one of those hospitals, just 200 meters from where we lived. Mm-hmm. And what they wanted me to do was to help these hospitals to establish a routine to do strategic planning. So that's what was why I was in the country. Uh, we brought our kids there as well, that they were five and the twin boys were three when we got there. So that was also very interesting to see how they adapted to a very, very different culture from what uh, we are used to. Yeah. So, uh, and, uh, and throughout the story here, we will hear a lot of examples of that, uh, in, in, uh, in management at least.
0: Sure. So but, you were, you were brought in the, to help, um, in, in one way, and I'm curious, what was the situation that you discovered? In the, in the book, you, you cite sort of a, a Kanban expression, start where you are. Mm. What yeah, was that exactly. starting point? How, how was that different than what you expected?
1: Yeah, so that, that was interesting because the, the, the quote, real work that I was there to do, it progressed really slowly, actually. But the hospital that was closest to us, they had some dire problems that we discovered. And the, the, the it was basically three. The first one we realized was that they were not making any money, uh, which... Uh, we'll get back to that. But I mean, that, that you need money in order to run the hospital. And it was actually so bad that they could not pay uh, their uh, salary at some points in time. And that had to do with the fact that they didn't have any patients coming to the hospital.
0: And this, is, is to set context, this is a privately owned hospital or is it part of the government? Okay. No, no, it's
1: a privately owned hospital by uh, owned by the Salvation Army. Ah, so okay. it was owned by them and uh, and and we had uh, I mean since it was so close it was my closest hospital. So when my kids got sick we went there and so uh, and it also was close to our the church that we went to and stuff mm-hmm. like The second problem they had was that the, uh, they didn't have an operational permit actually to that was current they were they still had one but they were working on a probation so that needed to be updated and that required some quality works work to be done that hadn't been done for for quite some time and the third problem was more acute and that was that they were doing a renovation where they replaced the roof and when i when the book starts i actually enter the lobby and i see water dripping down Mm. from the second floor so what had happened was that they took out the roof, and then another contractor was supposed to put on the new roof. But there was some kind of glitch, and they didn't arrive in time. Mm-hmm. And also, that when they took down the roof, they basically just tore it down and threw it down on the second floor. Oh. So when I got there, it was more or less, it looked like... A, yeah, there's a picture in the book, so you've seen mm-hmm. those. No, it It looks like a tsunami or an earthquake has gone through there. I was wading through water on the Mm -hmm. second floor Uh, and uh, our equipment was destroyed and uh, the the floor looked like nothing you would and not even think about going in there it was actually dangerous to be there yeah and uh, that was like the starting point because at this point in time I I was also uh, asked by the, the foundation that governs the hospital to to try because the hospital was doing so bad, so they were trying to see if we could like sell the hospital, and now we realized that no one wants to buy the hospital in mm. this state. So we need we need to find a way to get it up and running again. And it felt like we, I, I, to me, it was like this hospital is dead. We, we can't recover from this. Uh, and the interesting part was, and, and now we're starting to get to the to the culture because. In Indonesia, there's a very hierarchical culture. So if, if you, you would never speak up against anyone that is higher than you in the hierarchy. And also, that hides a lot of information, right? So people didn't really uh, expect this to be a problem. They, I, I actually heard someone say that, yeah, I suppose this looks strange, but I suppose this is the way they do it. So when I went up to that second floor and saw this disaster, I was actually the first one from the hospital that was up there. Mm. So I came down and I met the young director of the hospital and I said, we need to do something about this. And, and she just looked at me and said, what do you want to do? And I w- all of a sudden I was like in charge of that. And I, was, I, I didn't even have time to be terrified. Uh, but what I did was I, I only know one thing to do and that was that i started with doing some visualization so we just put up a couple of we need to do this we need a couple of stickies very very basic stuff that we need first to secure that you can even be in the hospital and then we need to start to clean out the second floor because it smelled like horrible from Mm -hmm. mold and everything like that Mm -hmm. And then we need to start make some money again, and and we we went really really concrete really fast. But that came out of necessity, because the hospital was on the verge of dying here. So so we we needed that fast.
0: And in in the book and and you know the the pictures are dramatic of the problem. Um, you know the pictures of of people uh, jumping in to help, and and part of that starting point. It just sounds like. The, the hospital was very underutilized, that there were a lot of uh, vacant beds, uh, a lot of uh, people who, who, you know, d- didn't have a full day's worth of, of work to do, among other problems. So uh, I guess I mean, it was partly it was 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 the challenge even before the, the roof issue and the in the flooding. Um, what, what were some of the challenges in, in terms of uh, you know, trying to help fill up the hospital?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And, and that's interesting, as you mentioned, right? Because, because before it was a very strange situation where they would have like five patients, and it's not a big hospital, but maybe they have five patients, inpatients, and 80 people working there. And everyone was, as you said, underutilized and, didn't, and undermotivated as well. And now all of a sudden, with this disaster, we had a spark that we need to do something here together. But it was still not enough to jug their attention. So we actually started to, to the, the starting point for us was that we counted how many patients do we need to serve each day in order to break even or in order to, first of all, in order to make money. And when I, we, we made a big diagram that we drew in front of the entire staff with that number and we plotted in every day, we plotted in how many was it yesterday and where's our goal. And a very interesting thing happened there because uh, our goal was 120 patients served, which was basically services sold to patients. So it would be one patient could have many services, but that doesn't really matter. Yeah. And uh, we were averaging on like 70. And when we told them about that, uh, they, there was no reaction. People were checking their phone and they were giggling amongst each other. And I was so frustrated with that because I, I told them, how do you think you get paid? Who's paying your salary? Right. And, and, and then we changed the name of that break-even line to lose money. Mm-hmm. And I told them, every time we're below this line, we actually lost money by having the hospital open that day. Uh, and, and that caught their attention. And from that point on, people started to realize that, oh, This is actually bad, and it's bad for me. We need to fix this together. So this visualization that we showed very frequently in front of everyone, that was really powerful, too, to get everyone's attention. Um, I read somewhere in the book called The Lean Enterprise, there's an expression called the one metric that matters. Mm -hmm. So that became the one metric that matters for us. Yeah. where where we everyone could rally behind that, and we saw many interesting examples, and we can get back to that later, mm-hmm. uh, where people actually stepped up and said, "I have an idea on how to improve for this without us asking," yeah. which was amazing in in that context.
0: Yeah, so I, I've I've made a note here. I want to come back to you know the the, the chart and the visualization and and. Progress that was made, and you know, talk about engagement and people's ideas. But you know, I want to maybe go back first when you talk about uh, you know, this hierarchical um culture uh, in 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 the hospital and and maybe more broadly in in Indonesian uh, society. You know, I'd be mm-hmm. curious what you um, ex- you know, what, what, what you saw. I mean, it's to me, you know, for one, it seems like this this under motivation. I've seen this um. You know, gosh, when I started my career at General Motors, a lot of people would say, well, you know, the the production workers are unmotivated. Like, well, that's sort of the end result of 35 years of working in an environment with a really hierarchical, broken, dysfunctional culture. And so, I mean, it seems like to me, you know, this this hierarchical culture would predictably lead to people not take, people have been taught to not take initiative. They've been taught not to speak up. Right. So how, how did you, I'm curious, you know, how you went, how, how you tried to navigate that, how you tried to start changing. That
1: yeah, no, you're, you're basically relating the, one of the experience that we have. My, my, my wife was sent, she was the first one that came to this hospital long before the roof fell in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, the reason she was there was exactly that. They said, the staff is lazy. Mm. And, and I totally agree with you. But, but here's, here's the thing. In, in Indonesia, you, it's, it goes both ways, right? So first of all, uh, leadership is think, thinks about the staff as only workers. Famously said by Taylor, from uh, mm-hmm. uh, he said, I, I don't expect people, uh, workers to think. I have other people to do that. And, and that's the management's job, too, right? make sure that they are busy, make sure that they have things to do. And if you're not busy, then you're lazy, basically. <laughs> uh, so so that's one way. But exactly what you said, when, when that happens, uh, all the thinking needs to happen up there as well. So the staff just goes, yeah, we have nothing to do. And we saw some flagrant and horrifying examples of that being institutionalized in, in the regard that it was actually written into their standard operating procedure and if you didn't follow the standard operating procedure there was actually a punishment in the deduction of mm-hmm. of uh, of, uh, of your salary which is like amazing because that's a, like a, a system to hinder innovation right um, so so and 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 we saw many many other examples that you Anyone that's been in a very politically driven company knows what I'm talking about, where you have to put forward an ID in such a way that the person above you looks good,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? It, it can absolutely come from you, but if you want to, you can never make a, a, a person above you look bad because then that will just come back and hurt you. Yeah, and we right. experienced some instances of that as well ourselves. So. Because I, I'm from Sweden, we are basically a socialist country where I I want everyone to be involved in every decision. So I, I'm in the other end, and and that was a real a really hard uh, experience for me to to learn when when I first got there. Yeah. So and and one of my favorite expressions of this was actually when I forced the poor director. So imagine this: you have this super hierarchical structure now uh, where. Where you, you as a manager or leader can never be wrong as well. You can never say, I, I don't know <laughs> right. or can mm-hmm. be wrong. And now I, we wrote, had this chart, this diagram that showed how badly the company was, uh, was performing. And I asked the director to go in front of her entire staff and said, this is how we're doing and we need to be up here. And... I saw her like squiggly, she was really uncomfortable doing that, and the only mindset that I could get into my head to understand what she was feeling was that if I were in front of the staff naked <laughs> that, that was how she probably felt. She was very much stepping outside her comfort zone, so i I remember when she did that, and I saw her pain, I actually just went up and stood next to her just to just to be there for support because. She, that was really, really hard for her to do. Uh, so, and, and, but it also, once we started to do that, and, and I think that maybe I had the opportunity to lead by example here because mm-hmm. I know very little about hospitals and, and extremely little about hospital management. And I told that to the, uh, to the staff many, many times. I, I, I just said, I, I don't know how we're going to do, solve this problem. You need to help me. I can guide you and I, I will help you to make sure that we get stuff done. But I don't know how, how we are going to get there. You, I need you to do that. Yeah. And that sparked this opportunity of uh, getting information from others. That made them super nervous in the beginning, I can tell you, <laughs> yeah. uh, when I said I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, after a while, we got to a very interesting place where they, we had a good conversation going back and forth.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting uh, dynamic. I've seen this in a lot of workplaces where people become conditioned to not speak up, just do what the boss says. They, they, I, I think you know, workers in that environment, for one, they say, well, you know, the boss doesn't know the answers. They don't know what they're talking about. They roll their eyes when the boss gives an answer that might not be, you know a directive that, that might not be appropriate. But yet at the same time, you know, they said, well, okay, we'll do this. And then when we fail, it's the boss's fault. There's a certain, there's a certain freedom in that. And I think, you know, it, I, I, I think it, you know, it, it creates, uh, it'll feel uncomfortable or risky to start speaking up and taking some of that ownership. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you, I I was really impressed. I, I noticed that um, the foreword for your book was written uh, on this theme of taking ownership and turning something around. Uh, yeah. uh, De- De- is it pronounced Marquet, David Marquet? Yeah,
1: you know, I, I have actually not met him, so I'm not sure. I, I say Marquis, but then we have two yeah, options.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but you know, he's the author of a, a book called Turn the Ship Around, which is you know, yeah. based uh, in the U.S. Navy. And, and his role as, as a leader uh, of a ship trying to, to, to change that culture. And so I'm curious, what what are some of the things you did to make it safer or more comfortable, you know, for people to speak up? I think, you know, one classic lean or, you know, Kaizen strategy is to ask people to start small, you know, small ideas are less risky. Um, They're more quickly tested. What what are some of the things you did to encourage, you know, more of a two-way communication instead of, um, you know, just that directive hierarchical approach?
1: Yeah, so, so in the leadership team where I did most of my work, to be honest, I, I actually only spent like two hours a day in, in this group. So in the leadership team, uh, I think what I what we just talked about was the way to go because, and that became the, I, I actually didn't know how, how to run this hospital. So I mm-hmm. needed their help and I was very, very open and candid with that. And I think that created this, uh, this uh, n- need for them to step up. Another thing that I think changed, uh, w- uh, changed the, the dynamic a bit was that we were super clear about the, the goal and we <laughs> followed it up very, very frequently. So we could see like uh, for example, we, we started a couple of improvement actions that we told the whole staff the improvement, uh, the progress on every day. And if we did an action and the, the graph didn't continue to go up over a couple of days, then you would instantly see that. So instead of focusing on the actual action, we were focusing more on the outcome, uh, so, uh, on the outcome rather than the output, right? Mm, right. So I think that opened it up as well. But, but then on the lower level, uh, um, it was actually my wife and a colleague of mine that started exactly what you said. They, uh, they started to do some quality work, and they had a very simple rule. Something needs to be improved until tomorrow. So they went around to every, every place in the hospital, including the kitchen and the laundry, and they asked the simple question. They asked, what has improved since yesterday? Mm. And, and it was very, very interesting to see that the laundry ladies, they were the forerunners here. Yeah. And they did so, sometimes they did so small things that it's almost, I mean, it's almost laughable, but just to get in that mindset, they would say something like, you know what, we moved this dustbin over here because it's closer to where we do our work. Okay, awesome. I love it. So so what we did was all always just pushing uh, and um, helping them to understand that even the smallest improvement is actually mm-hmm. an improvement.
0: Yeah, there, there was a line, or I think it was you recounting a story of, of giving a speech to the team of saying, we want to take baby steps towards yeah. our own improvement, which is, it's again, that that's sort of that classic Kaizen um, approach to lean of helping people get comfortable with change and, 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 and not trying to come up with big, huge projects. So like, you're probably not going to close a profitability gap with one big single project, right?
1: No, exactly, and, and, and that goes back again to be, because that was exactly what, you're, what we are referring to now was the problem. They, they didn't dare change anything because that was how the system was set up. So when we asked them to, you need to do something until tomorrow, then, then that was actually a, a, a huge step. One of my favorite stories is also one of the tiniest improvement I ever saw, but that was uh, uh, there was a, a flapping door at, at one place. And someone put a rock there to ensure that that, uh, uh, that, that door didn't flap up. Yeah. And at that point, uh, no one asked anyone to check that or, uh, or improve that. But at that point, I realized that people got this improvement ID. Like, uh, yeah, so this, someone saw that door and said, this is dangerous if this door flaps up. I'll put a rock here, and then I, and then a couple of days later, it was actually uh, locked down more properly. But mm-hmm. that that was it was a very concrete but also heartwarming thing to see that people mm-hmm. started to change their environment around them.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I think you know, there's other elements you touch on in the book. You know, stories of of leaders, uh, they're showing humility, um, yeah. they're trying to change that mindset. Of, of needing to have all the answers, being all, all knowing, um, you know, in, in an environment with a, a lack of trust and trying to build trust. And, and one other thing I'd be curious, you know, to, to hear you elaborate on, you know, in, in the book, you, you talked about the idea of, you know, instead of casting blame, we should be asking what in our processes and policies mm-hmm. allowed for this problem to happen. Yeah. Um, exactly. very familiar, um, you know, uh, classic lean thinking, but it, it's a, it's a, uh, a a big shift in a lot of organizations um, in, in healthcare, at least in in the U.S. There's this unfortunate, you know, rhyming phrase that's used to describe, um, you know, this old culture of naming, blaming, and shaming. Yeah, yeah. And how exactly. counterproductive that is. So, what, what were the, some of the things you did to try to build trust, other than saying, you know, hi, I, I, I'm Marcus. I don't have all the answers. Uh, yeah. what, <laughs> what, what else well, do you
1: do? Yeah. So, so, and some other things that we did, a very concrete thing was that we started something called the not list. And uh, uh, when the roof of a hospital falls in, it's very natural, right? To ask who, who did this? Yeah. Who can we fire? But if you fire that person, you have not improved the system. So I, I, sensed that that question were one of the first one that was able to discuss so the first meeting we took about improving the system I went up to the board and I created a a, a column to the uh, to the right of the board and I called it the not list and it was topics that we will not discuss in this meeting that's actually a good thing to do in any meeting to like set the frame the meeting we will not talk about this but for the first five or six meetings i always wrote who's to blame at top of that me- of that list
0: to not talk about that
1: yeah we will not <laughs> talk about who's to blame and then i turned around to the to the uh, team and i said okay anything else that we should not talk about here and that shifted the focus because other other uh, if we didn't have that we had spent a lot of time trying to find uh, someone to point to like, ah, oh, if, if she had only not done that, mm-hmm. if if he had monitored this better, well, there's a learning to be had there, but now I rather just want to improve. So that, that was a very concrete thing that we did in order to shift the focus, I think, a, a little bit more than that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: then we also started to shift the focus in the improvements that we did to more of a value it was more value than cost. If you if you get what I mean, mm-hmm. we, we didn't try to save ourselves out, uh, save cost, to get out of this problem, but rather to bring more patients in, and and that m- meant that we needed to be uh, increase the value of the the things that we did. So th- that also, I think, uh, shifted the thinking about uh, being very careful and uh, being very careful with what we spend and stuff like that. Uh, we, which was uh, a little bit scary for that. Yeah. And, and, and then I, one thing that I actually think helped as well was that I didn't have any formal authority. Now, that's not really true, though. It's a fun story because the, at first the hospital staff would not listen to me. And that goes back to what we talked about before uh, with the hierarchy in Indonesia, because they, they looked at me and they said, who's this guy? <laughs> from Sweden and uh, I, to be honest I can uh, I can imagine what why they would think that but but we actually had the foundation that governed the hospital they had to print a letter that we laminated and I held up in front of the staff that basically said listen to Marcus <laughs> so they did that and and but then when I, as I said I, when I started to tell them that I actually didn't really know uh, the The how on how we 're going to get out of here, then uh, I think we started to build the trust because i they could not they were not in danger of insulting me or in danger of of me getting angry with them. that would not hurt them as much because mm-hmm. I was just a, a third party there trying to help them someone to try to guide them and I think that that helped a little bit also for them to open up more. Right, right. Very often I saw that they talked through me to someone else, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then I could just say, oh, maybe if you talk together. So it was very small things. But that, that was pretty interesting to be that person that was on the side because I could observe like the, the, how the conversation was flowing rather than to be deeply engaged and deeply invested in each topic that was discussed.
0: Right. Yeah, and I mean, when, when there's a Toyota expression that you reminded me of, this idea of lead as if you have no authority. So you were clearly Ooh. there from the Salvation Army, the owner of the hospital, uh, but you know, can not relying. You know, that Toyota leadership style is one of not relying on that formal uh, that, that a formal authority, and instead of yeah. you know, leading people. And, 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 you know, uh, involving people, um, help, helping people develop solutions instead of telling them what to do. And there, there's a time and a place, you know, maybe in an emergency or a safety situation, you know, that 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 use of formal authority may may be justified. But it should be more of the exception where I think in a lot of organizations, that's just the default.
1: Yeah. No absolutely I, I never heard that expression, but I've been talking about that kind of principle before mm-hmm. because uh, I'm, I'm a member of the Salvation Army here in Sweden as well and it's pretty interesting how would you get people to do something that they uh, when they are doing that on their spare time? Mm-hmm. You have no the, my, my uh, pastor has no authority over me. Mm-hmm. Still I put in a lot of work in the church. Why? Yeah, because there's something else driving me here. And he leads as he has no authority because he he doesn't. So that's that's a really good expression. Yeah, because
0: I think, you know, trying to tap into intrinsic motivation. um, And I think that's the story from the book, uh, Turn the Ship Around. And and there's a similar book written by another um, U.S. Navy uh, captain or whatever, whatever, I don't know if I have the rank right, but somebody who is really, you know, the senior top leader responsible for a ship. There's another book called It's Your Ship. Yeah, and exactly. Started, that. You know, tapping into, you know, a military, a church, a hospital, different missions. But there's usually a strong sense of, of purpose. And, you know, you, you hope there is. I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, times in the book where it felt like people were just showing up for the paycheck. I think that's also a reflection on that old culture and, and yeah. something that you know, that we would try to change through through a lean culture.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely and and uh, it's interestingly how interesting how fast you can do that if you have a real a, a real sense of urgency to do that change because mm-hmm. both in uh, in uh, David Marquis book Turn uh, book the Ship around and in this situation there was a real urgency to change because the hospital was about to die. We need to do something now, mm-hmm. and and I think that that also lowered uh, or increased the, the trust in a way because they were like, okay, we all need to ship in. Everyone understood that. Once they got that the situation we were in, they understood that okay, we need to do this together. Yeah,
0: and and I think of you know the context of American hospitals. This is. And this is not just an American problem, but let's say, you know, American hospital is not going out of business uh, they're, they're, They might not be uh, making as much money as they would like, but there's not really a financial crisis. But in most settings, there is what, what I would I would frame as um, a patient safety crisis of hmm. of um, errors, you know, process problems that lead to harm or, or, or death. On a, on, a, on a really large scale. And, and i found, you know, unfortunately a lot of times in healthcare, it seems like people are uh, afraid to talk about the problems. And, you know, there, there was a quote that I, um, I highlighted, you know, something you said in the book to the team in Indonesia, uh, friends, we have many problems, but I wouldn't be here if I didn't think we can solve them. Yeah. And, really. you know, talking about problems, you know, openly, honestly, without blame, I think is a necessary first step. Um, how, how, how did you, what, what did you do to try to help encourage openness about different problems related to uh, patient volumes, attracting patients, um, you know, get, getting the hospital uh, beyond break even?
1: Yeah, so, so th- there I think my ignorance mm. about the culture was very <laughs> helpful because I Mm-hmm. I basically just said it out loud, just as you said there, and and, and we kept repeating that so many times that after a while, it, it everyone understood that we are doing something about it. And to be quite honest, as well, very soon after we started to take some countermeasures, uh, things improved uh, f- fast. So we saw that we could do something about this. Uh, so so um, uh, I, I think that that. That was hugely important, but also it tells us that there was low-hanging fruit here to be mm-hmm. to be picked. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, for example, to get more patients to the hospital, one of the first things we did was to go to the five nearest, nearest closest clinics, which were like blocks away from us, and just ask them to send patients to us when they could not handle it anymore. And they said, yeah, sure, right now we're sending them to that hospital over there because for any kind of reason, but we can send them to you, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the, the volume of patients just took off, mm-hmm. and there was a, a spike after a couple of days only before we, after we started with the improvement work, where we, like, for the first time in many years, were above. Uh, our uh, our limb the the break even point and and people were like is this correct we had a <laughs> long discussions about what we were counting and and stuff like that but but the, i think that 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 we saw that something changed as well was hugely important yeah. to to get people's attention and also spirits up to feel like yeah we can actually do this yeah uh, and, and I-
0: Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, yeah, sorry. No, no you, you've been uh, quoting a few things. I, I did my first ever motivational speech in, uh, in the hospital because they, what happened actually was the, uh, when we showed the numbers the first time, everyone felt like they were doing something bad. Uh, and, and they said, we can never get out of this. And they, they, it was a real downer to see these numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I wrote down a speech, I, a word for word, actually, because a friend of mine needed to translate it to Indonesian,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and it was much about this, this message that we are brushing on now. Like, we can do this, friends. We we mm-hmm. one one of the things that I brought up was we are a small hospital. We can actually make huge changes fast. It, it's not hard here. If we were yeah. a huge hospital, that would be a really pr- big problem. But we are small. It's easy to change. We're malleable. And, mm-hmm. and uh, we had, I had some other things there. But that speech in itself was actually a turning point. I, I don't know how much the speech was uh, the, the turning point. But, uh, but at that, from that point on, everyone like, realized we can actually do something yeah. about this. And we just went to work, and it, from that point, it it just took off. It was amazing. It was like a white uh, white water rafting almost. We <laughs> just tried to hold on.
0: Yeah, that's a little bit scary. I was saying earlier when you talked about waterfall development, going over a waterfall sounds very dangerous.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hard to go back. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, well and one other thing you know before we wrap up, I wanted to touch on you know you talked about looking at uh the patient the, the 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 metric on the number of patients the number of services provided and tracking that on a daily basis and you know looking for connections between uh you know improvements and and the result and I think that's really important um, I think you know, it's great the way you visualize that chart um there there's one thing in the book where I think you were sort of asking a question or you were wondering, or maybe some people said this, that showing that chart, showing that gap between, you know, the average of 70 and the needed goal of 134, that showing that gap was perhaps demotivating. I was wondering what what some of your reflections were on, on that idea. I mean, uh, or how did you turn that into something that was motivating? I know you, you, you gave talks, you were leading in a different way.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I I think from the beginning they felt i think that that's the thing that they felt that it could not actually uh, uh, have any impact on changing that number but when they saw that the actions that we did actually uh, was reflected in the change then uh, in the in the graph then they got really motivated by that yeah so i'll i'll relate one story which, which was super heartwarming to hear and that was a, a lady that was working. She was part-time physiotherapist and part-time working in the reception. So, And, and she had no formal power at all. She was a really engaged person and, and like really inspiring to talk to. But she had no formal power at all. And she came up to us one day and she just said, like, I have an idea about how to use the public health insurance services, uh, how to help patients to use that. A service better and we were like okay uh, let's do it and then she, she, she said really really confident she said yes but i have a i also have a demand or a requirement mm-hmm. if we're going to do that i want to put a banner outside the hospital to say here is where the public health insurance system works the best and so we were like oh okay that's a lofty goal but let's do it and we, right. and we put that up and you know what happened? A month after that, the the change was so uh, so concrete. She she made some very simple uh, like instructions and and blank um what do you call them forms and and also had a desk where you can help uh, people could come and ask you for help. Um, this uh, public health insurance was a new thing in Indonesia when I was there. Yeah. And so it, the change was so big that the public health insurance government and department actually came to us and asked us to host a workshop for the other hospitals of our size in the city wow. to help them to show how to get there. And that was a moral boost. I, I mean, everyone was so proud after that, so that it changed forever. And that was a, a lowly receptionist, right? that just saw the opportunity and connected the dots with we can actually make a change here in order yeah. to improve this. And, and, and I think that the, that visualization uh, tool was simple as, as it was, mm-hmm. was also very powerful in, in that it showed that uh, change is possible.
0: Yeah. And I think, yeah, I love the way you said that. I think I think one of the keys is not just illustrating the gap, but expressing, confidence in people that we, we can solve this. And then yeah. taking smaller actions, you know, not putting together the five-year plan for increasing patient volume, but taking small actions and, and seeing uh, improvement, uh, measurable results, um, you know, help, helps build momentum with change. So um, yeah. I think just one, we, of, one of the great we, stories in your book.
1: Yeah, and, and now that you mentioned we I remember on, on our board, uh, we also had uh, the board for improvements, where we have all the things that we were working on. Uh, one thing that we struggled with in the beginning was that I created a column that I called Until Tomorrow, which was basically... So, so for example, we wanted to try to get uh, uh, more patients from the nearby clinics. So then I asked the marketing team that was handling stuff like that, I asked them, what have you done until tomorrow? And at first, they were super confused. They were like, until tomorrow? What, what do you talk about? This, this will take a couple of weeks. Yes, but what have you done until tomorrow? Yeah, we compiled a list of the clinics. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> Good start. Good start. Let's do that. And, and that became also something that we always took some small step towards it, improving. Uh, was very, very important.
0: Well, and there, there, that's, you know, uh, there, there are so many great lessons in the, in the book. Um, I, I'm only 106 pages into it, but I'm very much uh, looking forward to reading the rest of the book, hearing how the story ends, and you know, I certainly encourage the listeners uh, to, to go and get the book. It's available uh, on Amazon as a paperback and uh, the Kindle platform. Uh, the book, again, is called Salvation, the Bungsu Story, how Lean and Kanban saved a small hospital in Indonesia twice and can help reshape work in your company. And so I guess I haven't even gotten far enough long to see what that second
1: crisis no no, yeah it it will it will come it's a bit of a downer in the middle of the book i can tell you yeah
0: (laughs) but i i think you you know i think the the other part of the subtitle here is really important you know lessons and principles here to reshape work in your company i think there are great lessons as as you said marcus of going into an unfamiliar situation and and leading with humility and and trying to be an inspirational leader and, and rallying people around Solving important problems—that's uh, great stuff. I'm really, really glad that that you wrote this book and, and shared these stories. Uh, I'll leave it uh, for you if you if you have final thoughts about um, how how people can find you online, if if they want to connect with you, or anything else you'd want to share.
1: Yeah. So so I, I just want to emphasize something that you said there because we started to talk about where I come from in IT, and the the thing that I did now in Indonesia has very little to do with the what, uh, sorry, the the how we do stuff in IT. But what I did was that I used the principles of Lean, the principles of Agile and Kanban and what have you, and I applied them to a new context. So I think if we we look beyond what we are doing, uh, how the board is written, how the cards are signed, or what kind of dashboards we have, and look beyond that and see the principles that it's built upon, then we can find many w- uh, situations and and uh, contexts where we can actually apply these principles. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit different, but it, it's still the same principle. And that that was a huge lesson for me. And that's the reason I wrote the book. And so uh, I'm easiest to get hold on on Twitter, I presume. And so I'll I'll give you a link to my Twitter name in uh, uh, that you can put in the show notes. And uh, other than that, I'm uh, very happy to have been on this uh, podcast and share my experience from writing this book and from the adventure that it tells the
0: story about. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's quite a story. And and Marcus, thank you for sharing it. So again, to wrap up, our guest has been Marcus Hammerberg. Um, You can find his book. I really recommend it. It's called um, Salvation. Um, you, you, and I, hope you'll, I hope you'll go check it out. I think you'll be uh, inspired by it. And there, there's a lot to think about from the book. So Marcus, thank you again for uh, being a guest today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org.